This week is a very special episode all about Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and it's coming up right now. Jesse Mercury, a show where I, Jesse Mercury, chat with my friends about the greatest of genres, science fiction. This week, I have my friend Barney Britton. We're going to talk about Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. His credentials in this situation are that he is actually British, and that is good enough for me. I met Barney a couple times before, and I just loved his voice. I just wanted to talk to him, wanted him on the show, just so I could listen to him speak. And it was quite the pleasure, and I'm very excited to share it with you. Before we get to that, a couple orders of business. First of all, happy birthday, Star Trek. Today's the day. Today is September 8th, the 50th anniversary of when Star Trek first came on the air. To coincide with the 50th anniversary of Star Trek, the Smithsonian Channel just released the documentary Building Star Trek, which is the one I told you about several months ago that I'm actually in. So I was interviewed in my Star Trek The Next Generation red shirt uniform. I'm a commander, by the way. I was interviewed the day before I hosted the opening party for the Star Trek exhibit at the EMP Museum, and some of my footage made it into the documentary. It's very exciting. I can't even tell you what it feels like to see myself in a film that also has Nichelle Nichols and Simon Pegg and Carl Urban and me. I mean, I'm basically Star Trek royalty at this point. I'm basically a professional Star Trek fan. (laughs) Uh, I was super happy with the footage that they used. I've been worried about that for a while. Um, But yeah, everything they used of me, I'm like, great, this is perfect. I'm very happy. I'm now uh, a part of Star Trek a little more than I was before, and it's wonderful. So definitely go check it out. I've posted a link to it on my website at jessemercury.com, as well as a few screen grabs of me on TV. Booyah. And it's also streaming right now on the Smithsonian Channel website. So happy birthday to Star Trek. I thought about doing a 50th anniversary episode of Star Trek, but considering that I just did five episodes in a row about Star Trek, it felt like I'd already celebrated in, in in a great extent. And all I wanted to do today was just say, I love you, Star Trek, and happy birthday. Speaking of Star Trek, I have some very exciting news. I just became affiliated with CBS All Access. This is my first sort of uh, legitimate uh, sponsorship on the podcast. So, as you know, the new Star Trek show, Star Trek Discovery, is going to be coming on to CBS All Access, premiering exclusively on CBS All Access in January of 2017. So, we're all going to have to sign up for CBS All Access. When you do, do me a solid. Go to jessemercury.com, click the link on the right side that says CBS All Access, and then sign up. Uh, And then you'll be supporting the show. I'll continue to make free podcasts. It'll be fantastic. It'll be a a great thing. It's the great material continuum, as as the Ferengi would say. So yeah, it's super easy. All you got to do, go to my website, uh, click the link on the right side for CBS All Access, and then complete the process to sign up. And that's it. A whole lot has happened in the last couple weeks. Uh, I missed the show last week. I wasn't able to put one out because I was moving. I thought I'd be able to get this edited and out to you before I moved, and I was wrong. And then all my gear was torn apart. So I just moved to a new new apartment over on the north side of Capitol Hill. I really love it. It's got a great view. Super cool building. I'm very, very happy. It's a nice neighborhood. It's a little quieter than my old neighborhood, Um, except for the radio interference, which is still quite loud. But luckily, I've learned how to deal with that. But yeah, here I am recording in my new space. I'm surrounded by all my nerdy Star Trek, Star Wars shit. It makes me happy. All my, I'm looking right at my, uh, my Super Nintendo games. <laughs> I have been under the weather for a while now, so I've been home for quite a while. I haven't mentioned this before, but I'm going stir crazy. I've been watching a lot of things. Uh, my energy level's been pretty low, so I'm using that as an excuse to watch a lot of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and now I'm watching Angel. Now I'm at the point where I'm on season four of Buffy, so I started Angel, and they're interconnected in this super cool way, and I know I'm way late to the boat on this, but it's good shit, guys. I really like it. Uh, it took me a while to like Buffy, but season three was amazing. I think I spent about 
like between seven to 10 years on the first two seasons. And then I got to season three and just like fell into it super fast. And then now I'm super in love with it. Similar thing happened to me with Doctor Who. Uh, when I first was home uh, feeling ill, I, that's the first thing I finished was all the modern Doctor Who. I'm now totally caught up and just chomping at the bit to get more. But man, I mean, there's nothing quite like uh, nerdy shit to get you through the the dull days. Am I right? Speaking of nerdy shit, let's talk about Hitchhiker's Guide. So you're going to meet Barney Britton, super cool guy. He's going to be on this episode, and then I'm going to chat with him next week as well. I contacted him and said, hey, I'd love to do a show about British sci-fi. I'm watching a lot of Doctor Who. Do you want to talk about that? And he's like, well, I don't watch Doctor Who, but I love Hitchhiker's Guide. And as soon as I got over the shock of someone who was actually British who didn't watch Doctor Who, I got really excited to talk about Hitchhiker's Guide because I love Hitchhiker's Guide. So uh, I'm going to bring you the theme song to the show and the radio series and the movie. Uh, They use the same theme in a lot of the different things. And then we'll jump over into uh, Barney, Britton, and I chatting. Here it is. That's, do people do that? Um, I've only seen it a couple of times, I've studied, but it's always so welcome. I've studied harder for this than anything since I was about 21. <laughs> <laughs> What's like the this nature the of first, your this notes? This is the first time I've done homework since I was at university. Wow. Yeah. Well, my notes. Okay. So the first thing I did was um, I read books one and two. Yeah. I listened to the radio show again, season one. I didn't follow with season two. Okay. Um, I read a bunch on Wikipedia. And then last night I watched, uh, last night and tonight I watched the film again. Nice. I, uh, I did most of the same. I read books one and two and started three, but only like two chapters. It gets after books two. It, it, the whole, so my whole thing about Hitchhikers is I'm a huge fan of it, but it's, it's such a fucking mess. <laughs> like it, which is why I like it. I was going to ask if yeah. I could swear with a new swore, so I thought. That... Oh, I swear. I had never listen to the radio show so i listened to the first episode of right. that um i had also never seen the bbc tv show <laughs> and i watched all of it over the last couple of days oh have you because i've never i never had like six episodes i've seen and then of course the movie again i've seen bits of the tv show but my problem with hitchhikers um i mean like i said it is a, it is one like great big clusterfuck it's it's <laughs> such a mess but that's like the beauty of right it. no that's yeah. that's the thing it's wonderful um the problem with the tv show is because it was so early on mm-hmm. the the radio show is so fresh at that point and all the visions you have in your head of what this all looks like the bbc's fucking nothing budget right in whatever it was 1980 or i forget it's a little embarrassing it's awful it's like it's way way cheaper than doctor who from that era and that didn't yeah. look great yeah, it definitely like has a lot of charm though. It, it has still charm. has charm, and I, Douglas Adams' dialogue is great in it any is. format. It is. Yeah, I mean, this has been adapted in more formats than anything else that I can think of. Like, it, it's got the stage show, it which a, I have not it even. It was a radio show first. Into. It was several stage shows. Yeah, actually, some of which were really good, some of which were just bonkers. Um, that I have no idea about at all. Uh, some of them were rock musicals. That's for awesome. a while um they, they that was popular in the early 80s i know they did a few adaptations as rock musicals then it was the tv show which a lot of people that was the first time that, that really of really seeing it mm-hmm. um i watched a i watched a bit of one of them and yeah. i couldn't get over just how terrible it looked because yeah. all their visions in my head right of what you know zay von beeble second head looks like was so badly betrayed by the zero budget bbc production of, right of, you know of that period i just, i I couldn't get on with it. In, in my opinion, the ultimate version is absolutely the books. Douglas Adams' writing to me has a very particular voice. Right. And I hear it very specifically when I read it. And even the radio show, the voice sounds a little different than it does in my head. So it still takes me one step away from my own imagination. And the beauty of Hitchhiker's Guide is that it just like explodes your imagination open yeah. with these yeah. incredible worlds that you're visiting 
and the absolute ridiculousness of the entire universe. It does. And also, I think one of the things I love about Hitchhikers is that it's so... That the I, You can feel Douglas Adams panicking a little bit as he, as he moves through <laughs> the various iterations of this basic concept because they get further mm. and further away from the pure enthusiasm of the original idea. Interesting. What, what do you mean by that? He... It gets fucking dark. I mean, oh, I haven't. No, like haven't mostly read, harmless is I, so dark. God, I haven't read that book since I was about fourteen or fifteen, and I yeah. couldn't. I, I may not even have finished it. Wow. I mean, he and he wanted to write another one because even he was like, Oof. "Yeah, I need to cheer this up a little bit." <laughs> so I thought the the dark ending, and I I've I read it all in high school, and since my reread recently, I have not gone back through the last two books. Yet. No, like, but I do like, remember yeah. it being incredibly dark. It is. Yeah, I remember it ending on like the darkest note possible. And just feeling like it was perfect. He meets. So he, what, what happens is I, I forget the exact details, but basically the the <laughs> he meets the love of his life again. They yeah. have a child, and then everyone dies. Yeah, everyone dies. It's like Game of Thrones. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's but interesting because like you start the whole journey with Earth being destroyed, and then you end the journey with Earth being destroyed well, again. Well, let's yeah. So let's give this whole conversation a bit of structure. This is what I love about Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Is I came to it first from the, the book. Yeah. So my dad and Douglas Adams are basically the same age. Okay. So they're both too old to be, sorry, both too young to be hippies. Both <laughs> too young to be yuppies. Mm. So you get this weird generation of people in the late 70s that don't quite know which, you know, they're like us now, actually. They're not really much of anything. They're just sort of stuck. They're not, they mm. don't belong to this last fable generation. Interesting. But they're too old to really be called the flag bearers of the next one. Yeah. So, you know, 10 minutes into the, well, I think the first episode of the radio series, a few pages into the first book, yeah. Earth gets destroyed. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, all right, well, there you go. Yeah. That's a hell of a jumping off point. It really is. And it's it, like, I mean, <laughs> it's all imbued with sadness. It like, is. It's very sad. Yeah. And I there's this one passage where they're talking, uh, it's Slutty Bartfast is talking about like what he tries to do to be happy, you know? Yeah. And yeah. then Arthur asks him, well, well, are you happy? He's like, well, that's where it all falls apart. <laughs> yeah. And he says, uh, you know, and one, it's full of wonderful punchlines. Like I think my, my, what I love about the whole thing, all of the, the iterations of this is the mm. whole thing is about a series of grand images and grand ideas that yeah. just end in like, Arthur says um, something along the lines of, this makes sense. I've always thought there was something deeply, terribly wrong with the world. Yeah. It's, like it's just normal says, paranoia. It's just normal, normal paranoia. Everyone gets <laughs> Everyone that. Everyone has that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite lines in the whole thing is uh, Slutty Bartfast, like, showing up. I just love that character so much. He shows up. Yeah. He's so mysterious. What? What is your name? My name's not important. And then later on, he's like, <laughs> it's like, my name's Slutty Bartfast. I told you it wasn't important. <laughs> so there, he was, the, one of the things I, I'm going to keep on saying this, one of the things I love about the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy because I don't like Doctor Who. That's, what the first, that's the first thing you're trying to get me in to talk about. Um, this one, is a whole bucket of worms. <laughs> one of the Not things, a can, a bucket of worms. A bucket of worms, yeah. right. It's bigger than, bigger than a can. Um, one of the things I like about it is that when you do a little bit of reading around it, and if you start with the radio series, if you take that as being the purest form of the original idea, mm -hmm. because that was the earliest iteration of it, yeah. he was literally writing it as they were broadcasting. I mean, they were turning the scripts in minutes ahead of recording, and yeah. they were mixing minutes ahead of final live broadcast in some cases. Wow. He's notoriously late. He's, yeah. So the whole thing's an essay crunch. The first book wasn't meant to end where it did. He's run out of time. The yeah. first book was meant to cover all the events of seasons, uh, I think at least the whole of season one of the radio series, and it just doesn't. It just ends because he basically ran out of time on the deadline. Wow. But names like Slarty Bartfast and, uh, you know, all the... the ridiculous planet names and alien names and all these things. He was literally just making that up. And they, yeah. were, ha they were handed to the actors in, in like Stephen Moore is this incredible Shakespearean actor who even at the time was an incredible Shakespearean actor. He gets dragged yeah. in to do Marvin, doesn't know what he's getting into. <laughs> he's being handed names like Slarty Bartfast. What the fuck is that? Yeah. <laughs> and he was literally just making it up as he went along. But that's one of the things that I think the reason you don't really notice that is that a, the cast of the radio series is incredible. Mm -hmm. And it was, a lot of them came back for the TV series. Right. And a few of them actually did cameos even in the film. Oh, which ones? Um, Arthur Dent plays the, 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 the Magrathian um, recorded message. Oh, the guy who played Arthur Dent. cool. Yeah. I didn't notice that. Because I watched the show after I rewatched the movie. 
this week. Right. So okay. I just didn't put that together. Yeah. No, the, the, yeah. there's a lot of the through yeah, through threads of the people in it. But the cast is so good. Yeah. He's they a make brilliant it Arthur Dent. He's well, he, so you good. You know, the story about, behind him, he's just, he wasn't an actor. He was a friend of uh, Douglas Adams really? from university. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> and Douglas, Douglas Adams called him up and said, um, I've written this character, uh, which I think might be a radio thing. And it's basically just you. <laughs> do you want to, you want to play come it? in and do it? And he said, well, there's a compliment buried in there somewhere. So, yeah, sure. Wow. And he was in two radio series, the TV show and, and yeah, various yeah. bit parts and everything ever since. Yeah. I think inside of all of it is this incredibly astute observation on humanity mm. where the characters, the events, just the ridiculous nature of everything, the bureaucracy. I learned so much about human nature from Hitchhiker's Guide. And I, I read it at a very formative age when I was needing things to kind of tell me about the world outside myself because, you know, I was in high school. I'd never, mm. like, lived anywhere besides San Diego at that point. And these books really showed me kind of my worst nightmare of the bureaucratic, <laughs> um, like, nine-to-five grind of life. And it's- these movies are kind of, or not movies, the, the stories are kind of like a revolt against that. They are. And, the, the, the you know, the... They were written, he, he started doing the radio series in 1978. I think mm-hmm. the book was 1979 or 80. So, and it's interesting you say that because I got into the books when I was probably about 10 or 11. So I would say probably early 90s. Mm-hmm. And at that point, we're not, we're just done with Thatcher, just. But only just. And he was writing the books when, you know, um, Thatcher was just about to come to power. So they sort of belong to the same period as my upbringing. It was that mm. slightly depressing, dark, kind of just embarrassingly shitty period in British history. Um, and he's satirizing it very effectively. Interesting. So tell me more about that, because that's this is something that I this is the reason I want to talk to you, because I'm really fascinated with British sci fi, a lot of it. Uh, and I wanted to get someone's point of view who grew up there. So when you say that, what does that mean? Because I, I know nothing about British history because a big failing of American culture <laughs> is they don't teach you shit about like, anyone else. You hardly learn anything about American history. Either, from That's everything true. I can tell. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no offense, America. No, it, it's, uh, it's just, it's, it's shot through with that sort of um, sardonic, good-natured hopelessness, I think. Oh, awesome. And I, yeah. I think, so in, in the States... The the post sort of the, the post hippie era was dealt with with um, paranoia and conspiracy yeah. theories. So if you look at a lot of popular culture from the mid to late seventies onwards, mm-hmm. a lot of the filmmakers of that era, like Coppola, are, are essentially they're 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 conspiracies, they're paranoia constructs. Mm-hmm. Whereas in, in in the UK, that's when the sat, that's when I mean satire had been around since the sixties. Satire was a was a Peter Cook Dudley Moore sort of invention if you want to be as, as, as uh, you know basic as that but satire in the mid to late 70s gets really pointed and really political hmm. that's when you've got spitting image that's when you've got not nine o'clock news you, the alternative comedy movement is, is birthed in the very late 70s early early 80s in, in the uk is that like like monty python no monty python was earlier monty python was in the 60s that was very so, much a 68 69 thing yeah there's like so many things that i just know nothing about like i know monty yeah. python i know black adder i know monty python black adder was early 80s Okay. That was Ben Elton and yeah. um, and Rowan Atkinson who came out of that alternative comedy scene. So you get a okay. lot of it, it's, and that's when the Cold War was really gearing up. And you, you guys had Reagan, yeah. And Reagan was like, "Fuck yeah!" Whereas we, what we had was, "Oh fuck," because we were right on the front line of it. So the right. Cold War had gone through de-escalation, and in the early eighties, it just goes right back into re-escalation. It gets yeah. very scary. Yeah. And I, I'm just just too young to remember the the duck and cover drills at school. Yeah. But older kids older than me would have had them. Yeah. Because the Cold War suddenly got really hot again in like yeah. the early to mid 80s. And so, you know, you, you, you guys dealt with that kind of end of the age of Aquarius with anti-government, you know, paranoia tales. We dealt with it with just resigned, resigned humor. Interesting. Because <laughs> and, and that's, 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 that's like, what ah, I really like latch on to. Nothing is real, so who cares? Right? And how did you describe that? Um when you first started talking about this, that type of humor, uh, you described it perfectly. I love the way you said it. I <laughs> you don't might have now. to scrub back we'll through have to the back recording and, and find it. Yeah. Um, oh, good-natured hopelessness. I yeah, think you said. that sounds yeah. about right. And something about that 
for me, like growing up in a completely different culture, something about that good natured hopelessness like really spoke to me. Mm. Uh, and I, it's hard for me to put my finger on why. Maybe it's because I, I grew up on this like idealistic Star Trek uh, diet. And then I discovered Hitchhiker's right, Guide, yeah. which is... It's, it's the opposite. It's, of it's the opposite, but yeah. it's also idealistic. Mm. It's like, here are people with their with like good intentions, and their intentions are to just kind of get by and enjoy themselves. Where Arthur is just kind of this stick in the mud the whole time, you know? Like, Arthur never really gets on board with the whole traveling around thing. He just wants to sit down and have a cup of tea is and relax. Any, is there any tea on the spaceship? Yeah. yeah. But what I love about uh, Ford and Zaphod is that they don't seem to... They don't seem to really care about anything. They're, like, very optimistic, even though shit's going wrong constantly. They just kind of go with the flow. But then, I mean, talking about the, the Hitchhiker's gets it does get it does get very dark. There are moments mm-hmm. of genuine horror. And I think yeah. even quite early on, the the whole the whole plot line around Zaphod has two two brains, you know, and he has done brain surgery to on himself. himself. Yeah. It you know, that that is actually when you first come across that in the certainly in the book, yeah. it's it's kinda of horrifying. It's very horrifying. But it's also like a really cool sci fi idea. Like yeah. he's got this knowledge that he needs to hide from himself, which they really changed in the the movie version to kind of cut out the yeah. the intensity of it because he was just he wanted to be president and he knew there was parts of himself that weren't presidential so he put it into his crazy head I have real problems with it with the movie version and one yeah. of the reasons I do is that I think it misses an opportunity misses so many opportunities mm. to be a lot more metaphysically interesting than it is yeah so if you think about the the the, the certainly especially in the book this is drawn out very effectively the whole idea of um, the 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 purpose of uh, I forget how he puts it. it. The purpose of power is to distract. Is, the purpose of authority is to distract attention from real power. So the yes. lead, the leader's job is to distract attention from the from the way in which power is actually wielded. To, to distract attention from the fact that no one else even knows how power is actually wielded. To, right. To but make sure that no to... one else even knows. But then they go and they meet the ultimate power. Right. Which is such an incredible scene in the book when, when Zaphod and Trillian, in uh, the second book, when they meet the person who's actually making the decision. He just lives in a shed with his cat on the planet. Yeah. yeah, but the way that he thinks is so incredible, where he just doesn't believe that anything is real. He doesn't actually... Uh, he, he takes nothing for granted. So he is actually a really good person to be making these decisions, mm. uh, which I thought was so surprising for this really kind of dark universe not even dark. It's just like nothing matters in this universe. It's, not, it's all it, random. It's it's. <laughs> I have a friend who's a nihilist, and uh, <laughs> he I just, I describe him as a as an anarcho humanist. He's actually a lovely, lovely man, but uh-huh. he, he doesn't believe that anything matters. Anarcho humanist. Anarcho anarcho humanist. What's that? Anarcho like a costume anarchist and a humanist. Hmm. He's all for nihilism, but actually he's just a really nice guy who hopes for the best for everyone that comes across. <laughs> so anarcho humanist is the way I, I put it, but. I actually wrote this quote down, um, I was struggling for it a minute ago, but the job of the president is not to wield power, but to draw attention away from it. Yeah. Now, what, the reason I don't like, one of the reasons I like the movie is because if you transmute that to 2016, yeah. you know, you can do a lot with that basic concept. And it, it's, he's, he's, Douglas Adams is, is intelligent and cynical enough to be able to explore that in a very interesting way. Yeah. It's all just a puff of smoke. It's all just a mm-hmm. magician's illusion. Mm-hmm. You know, no one, you, you can, like Sally Bartfast says, you know, the, the, I've lived long enough now to know that you could never hope to get to the bottom of the things. You just have to say, hang the sense of it and, and carry on anyway. Yeah. But no, I like it. it it's, it's, a, it's, a de- it's depressing in a way. But it's also like weirdly uplifting. And well, yeah. It kind of gives you control over your own life in a strange way. If if you look deeper into the inner workings of the universe and it makes no sense, then it frees you from caring. You don't have to care. It's like if you are someone who's really struggling with agnosticism and you have to know, is there or isn't there a God? And then you find out that God is like um, like, like a, a piece of cheese or something. <laughs> then it then you're free. You know, you no longer have to worry about it because if if. If God doesn't matter, and of course, Douglas Adams is a very outspoken atheist. Yeah. Um, If God doesn't matter, then 
the universe is yours. Like you have to take control of your own self and your own life. So there's something freeing about that message. Well, that's one of the wonderful things about the about the, the, the Douglas Adams worldview is that the worst possible thing that can happen is you get put in what he calls a total perspective vortex. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Where you get shown just how insignificant you are alongside yeah, and it the, drives you the entire rest of the universe. And it's meant yeah. to be the worst possible torture imaginable by human by, by you know human consciousness. Yeah. Just the whole idea of that is like the worst possible torture imaginable imaginable is to be told that you don't matter at all. Yeah. And in in a way that's like physically impossible for us to actually mm. contemplate because we can think about that in abstract terms, but we can't experience it because we really I mean we really can't. And the book, uh, that scene in that book made me think about that fact that I can't actually experience that mm. no matter how much I can think about it. I will never actually know what that's like. It, yeah, it's it's a it's a very complicated, inconsistent, uh, messy satire on human selfishness, and that's mm. one of the things I think that makes it endlessly appealing. Totally. Where he. I think where Douglas Adams falls down a little bit is, well, for one thing, his writing never gets as good again as when he's writing as the book. Mm. His writing is very, very fluent. Oh, it's uh, so good as the book. And actually touching and oddly moving as the book. And, and when he A long tries time ago, to... the universe was created, which many people considered <laughs> to be a bad move. <laughs> I have a whole section actually, which I'm perfectly happy to quote to you, which is my, my one of my favourite and and uh, I think most illuminating sections of the entire work. But hit me with it; I'd love to hear. Well, it. let me hang on. Let me let me. Uh, you can vamp for a second when I find it on my uh, on okay. my my mobile. Oh, by the way, the um, just talking about the film. The film came out in 2004. Mm-hmm. 2005, two thousand four. Right? Uh, oh, made in two thousand four. Came out in two thousand five. Correct. Yeah, right. yeah. So about a year and a half, two years ahead of the iPhone. Four years ahead oh, of the iPad. Interesting. Can you imagine? Wow. It's basically the Galaxy is basically an iPad. It is an iPad. Right? The so I love the movie. Um I definitely recognize that it's not uh it doesn't have the depth of the books, but what it does have that the show doesn't is it really shows the world. I mean, you get to see this incredibly creative version of the world. The Heart of Gold looks incredible. The the design of everything is amazing. The Vogons look fantastic. The Vogons do look fantastic. So there's yeah. two things about the film I like. One of them is the Vogons all look like retired Tory MPs. Yeah. Which I think is wonderful. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's super true. They do. They look like... You, know, you may not have seen it, but there's a cartoonist called Gerald Scarf. He's a political cartoonist. The political cartoonist, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. They based it all off of that. He, so he, I think he actually may have even worked with them on it. Oh, but interesting. He, he did a cartoon um, for the Times in mm-hmm. the very early 60s of Winston Churchill, not long before he died. Winston Churchill was in politics for much longer than he should have been. Mm-hmm. And I think he, maybe he might have even had a stroke at this point, but he was still in the House of Lords. And Scarf was commissioned to do a cartoon of Winston Churchill. He did this cartoon. It's hard to look at. It shows Winston Churchill as this broken, hunched, your gargoyle sort of figure <laughs> sat among other antique wow. retired politicians. The Times didn't run it because they thought it would upset his wife. Wow. Private Eye ran it as their cover and he then became, you know, attached to the Private Eye for the next sort of 30, 40 years. But the Vogons look very much like the vision of that cartoon, humped yeah. and slouched. And, yeah, you know. and on the Vogon planet, they have those fly swatters where you have an original thought, they come up and hit you in the face. So the the designers were saying how they imagined that the Vogons had lived with that for so long it evolved into their facial structure. So their noses are all flat and kind of up on their faces, which which I thought was super cool. And I love the acting, the casting. I fucking love Zaphod in that movie. Right. So I have issues with this. I, I, I don't want to get too far down this rabbit hole because I understand why people like the film. Mm-hmm. As... Someone who was, I first read the book when I was very, very young, got mm. into the radio series, and I basically stopped there because okay. I thought, well, if the radio series is the original version of it, then that's where I'm, that's, that's it. The yeah. TV series is low budget, looks like, looks kind of crappy. Yeah. I'll stick with the radio series and the books. The film, to me, is just confusing. It's willfully <laughs> confusing. If you know the story and you know the canon, the film is just like, it's, it's like having a brain cut up and put back in the wrong order. It's like, oh, we recognize that bit, but I, 
oh, no, the, the, what happens next isn't what's meant to happen next. What's going on? Like, oh, that's kind of familiar. I see what you mean. But they jumped yeah. ahead three books for that bit. What I didn't know, because I was ready to just go, ah, it's, it's bullshit. You know, yeah. Douglas Adams had died. This it is was a his bastardization script. of his yeah. idea. But it was, yeah, basically his script. I mean, the bit yeah. about the film that I probably hate most is the point of view gun. And he wrote that. He created I it. I could do without the point of view gun. So I, Douglas Adams I, I put like it in there. I like it when Marvin shoots it because it's funny. Yeah, but it works. Trillion saying it won't work on me because I'm a woman. Um, I'm like, what are you trying to yeah. say by that? Well, like, because it was invented by women to right. make men see things from their point of view. Yeah. But I mean, he put it in there because towards the end of his life, he was basically like, if I do nothing else, I'm going to get this fucking story filmed. Yeah. I've been trying since the 70s to get someone to film it, someone yeah. to back it. They've yeah, gone yeah, through yeah. all these script versions and all these changes of directors that were attached and deattached again and studios that were attached and disattached. And uh, so he was constantly trying to find ways to go like, all right, this, was this, is this okay? Does this work? <laughs> so things like the point of view gun, he put in there to allow Hollywood to just join those dots. Hmm. And what I like about the original radio version of it is that a lot of those dots are never joined. Right. And your your imagination has to do the work. Right. And as Which a consequence, it's much more human because it's more random. Yeah. There are things My, in the radio series that, just, that never really land. They never really get explained, but it's just yeah. part of the flow of it. The only thing about the movie that I straight up don't like is the love story between Arthur and Trillian. Right. And I, I, which is so like shoehorned in because Americans yeah. like love stories. It, it, it's in there. It's in the radio series. It's in the book. Kind of. Kind of. She's kind of just like disinterested in him. Well, that's another... Actually, that's a really good... This leads on to another really good point which I wanted to make about this. That the Much as I love it, it's... the the Douglas Adams is a horrible, horrible writer for women. He has mm. almost nothing in there for women. Right. The female characters where they exist are like barely even half sketched right trillion in the books the radio series she's not even really a character she's just i mean she's not even really background she's right. mentioned every now and again yeah and then i agree with that for sure and then that that's in that's, all iterations in the tv show uh trillion is supposed to be like this ultra smart person who understands rocket science but she dresses uh, like a piece of eye candy and well, she talks like she's dumb that's the whole i mean that's the whole idea in the in the 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 radio show and the and the books is that she's meant to be um an astrophysicist yeah hence the attraction to say do you want to, you know is this guy boring you i'm from another planet <laughs> but it just never it never pays off yeah i mean she's not even she is not even comic relief she doesn't there's no no punchlines attached and he's yeah. a great punchline writer douglas Adams. oh yeah the best he doesn't write for her at all yeah and they did make a bigger part for her in the movie but of course it's a love story. And so it's so... It's so and, and she's it, just not right for that. She's like... I she's like her in that. I, I like Zoe Deschanel, but she's, I mean, she's Manic Pixie Girl. Yeah. She doesn't I know like what to do with that role because that role is not... It's so ill-defined. How do you feel about uh, Most Deaf as Ford? Um, I I don't know. I'm, I'm very attached to my... I'm very attached to Mark Wing Davy. Mark Wing Davy was the well, guy He who, was uh, Zaphod, right? No. Um, oh, no, you're quite you're right. So Jeff McGiven. Jeff okay, McGiven yeah, yeah. was was Ford Prefect, yeah. But um, in the radio show, but not in the TV show. That's right. Because they were different. Yeah. They the guy was... who plays Ford in the TV show is my least favorite part of the TV show. I actually can't even remember who that is. I, I don't know his name. But he delivers all the punchlines with a wink and a smile. It's like, the best part about Ford is that he doesn't know that he's being funny. Yeah. And that's why I love his character so much, is he says stuff that's just so off the wall and so strange, but he's not laughing with you. He Ford's just thinks a, that it's real. It's a, Ford's a great character. Oh, because, he's so so Ford's the perfect... So, so Arthur Dent, if you want to talk about this in classic storytelling terms, like Arthur Dent is the, the ingenue. I mean, he doesn't know what is going on. He's there <laughs> to allow the plot to be explained around him. Yeah. And Ford is like is in a really funny way the vehicle for the whole thing. Yeah. So Ford is the observer, but Ford never does any narrating. Yeah. But he does quite a lot of explanation. He explains a lot of things to, to, to Arthur early on, which really help. Yeah. So he explains what the book is. He explains who Zaphod is. Yeah. You know, he, he has a he has a very uh um what you might I suppose to call a lucidatory role in, in the yeah. the early bit of the books. He's been out there, he's seen it all, he understands yeah. everything. He's kind of like a a pathway for Arthur to 
to hitchhike through the galaxy yeah. if he wants, but he doesn't, and he never really picks it up. <laughs> so do you know? Actually, I, I, I'm I'm not a, I'm not sure how well this this joke translates. One of the funniest jokes in Hitchhikers is, I'm sure, one of the ones that no one really gets. But is it Ford, Ford's name? Yeah, Ford Prefect. I so, had to look it up. I didn't know what right. it meant. I get it now, but I didn't get it for a long time. So what? <laughs> Hitchhiker's Guys of the Galaxy is a good deal funnier if you can if you were raised in the, in the 70s <laughs> um, in the UK <laughs> right yeah, yeah. It's, it's specifically in the UK so calling someone Ford Prefect the, so the joke is Ford before he comes to the earth he examines the, the planet cursory glance whatever else he he uh, comes to the belief that automobiles the dominant species on earth because <laughs> there's so many because so many of them because even you know uh, Douglas Adams is an environmentalist from from that point on really mm-hmm. uh, and there's some great dialogue monologues on from the book about roads and the prevalence of roads and the turning of the earth into tarmac even in those very early iterations of the story so Ford prefect looks at the earth determines the fact that cars are the dominant species what 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 name could i pick to fit in Ford Prefect. Ford Prefect is basically like calling someone Toyota to Corolla now. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a very common car it's in the like late seventies in England. Ubiquitous car on exactly. the road. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's 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 like uh, yeah Toyota Prius to Corolla Honda Civic. It's that, that's the joke. Um, uh, and they don't anyway. even exist in the states. No, and I, I mean by the time I was a kid, they didn't exist in the, yeah in the UK. I, I mean, like even the word prefect doesn't really exist in the states yeah it's uh you know what it is right it's like the school like person yeah it's, I, I learned it through harry potter se- right <laughs> it's se- yeah senior boy or senior girl in a particular yeah. year at school i was a prefect for one year i think okay basically yeah, what yeah. it means is that you just get to tell little kids to go to to like run to class and don't be late um it's weird being made fun of by kids when you're a kid i mean yeah by younger kids <laughs> yeah, I mean, we all get used to it from our own yeah, age group. You don't expect to get hazed by five-year-olds. <laughs> anyway. Build that. That's difficult. I found this lip. quote for you. I don't know if you... Uh, Hit me. Want to hear it. This is the... Uh, from from memory, this is the way that the be- the second episode of the first radio series begins. Okay. And it's the way that the second book begins. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a little bit lengthy, but uh, this is one. Of, I, I think this is the best example of of, of the most concise encapsulation of of, uh, of the worldview, and it's some of the mm. best writing I think he did in the books. Cool. Far out in the uncharted backwaters of the unfashionable end of the western spiral arm of the galaxy, lies a small, unregarded yellow sun. Orbiting this at a distance of roughly ninety-two million miles is an utterly significant little green-blue planet, whose ape-descended life forms are so amazingly primitive they still think digital watches are a pretty neat idea. <laughs> this planet has, or rather had, a problem, which is this. Most of the people living on it were unhappy for pretty much all of the time. Many solutions were suggested for this problem, but most of these were largely concerned with the movements of small green pieces of paper, which is odd because on the whole it wasn't the small green pieces of paper that were unhappy. <laughs> and so the problem remained. Lots of people were mean, most of them were miserable, even the ones with digital watches. Many were increasingly of the opinion they'd all made a big mistake in coming down from the trees in the first place. And some said that even the trees had been, mis- had been a bad move, and that no one should have left the oceans. And then, one Thursday, nearly 2,000 years after one man had been nailed to a tree for saying how great it would be to be nice to people for a change, a girl sitting on her own in a small cafe in Rickmansworth suddenly realised what it was that could have been going wrong all this time, and she finally knew how the world could be made a good and happy place. This time it was right. It would work, and nobody would have to be nailed to anything. Sadly, however, before she could get to her phone to tell anybody about it, the Earth was destroyed to make way for a new hyperspace bypass. <laughs> and that doesn't get resolved until book five, maybe? We meet the girl from Rickensworth? Yeah. But that's how it... That's like that's the kickoff. Yeah. It's like everything's... People are miserable, everything's terrible. One woman figured it all out. Uh, and then the Earth was destroyed. So yeah, I never, I never realized. It's like that's a hell of a way to kick off a radio series. Yeah, totally. There's the the whole series is littered with brilliant ideas, and it's also littered with nonsense. Yeah, which is wonderful. Uh, it's I such think, a perfect balance of brilliance and nonsense. Unfortunately, the, the proportion of nonsense increases as the as he works his way through the uh, yeah the canon. I'm excited to reread the last three books again because they are. Like the last two were only written as books, where the first yes. two were only were originally radio plays, yeah. uh, and then adapted to books. 
the third book was originally written to be a Doctor Who serial. Yes, like uh, right, yeah. like a four four or six part Doctor Who um, thing in the middle of mm. some season, and never got made. Parts of of this, I think, parts of season two of the radio series are from that basic idea too. Yeah, he couldn't mm. sell it. He couldn't sell it to the BBC because yeah. he worked. I mean, he was a BBC writer. He was an in house writer. Yeah, for I mean, he's written for Doctor things. Who that stuff that yeah. got made. Yeah, yeah, which I'm thrilled to look at. It's in the Tom Baker years. And I'm I'm right now almost caught up on the new Who, which I just started on. Peter Capaldi. Yeah, I haven't um, seen any of that. Is it any good? Oh my god, it's incredible. Really? So, like, new Who started I think around two thousand five. Uh, um, with Christopher Eccleston? Or are you, are yeah. you not counting that one? Yeah. Okay. And Christopher Eccleston was like just okay, but then David Tennant was. He wasn't really into it. I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> David Tennant was like remarkable. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. I don't know if I've ever seen anyone play a part where they seemed more suited to the role. The than Scottish, the, the best Tennant. people at interpreting and, and satirizing the English of the Scottish. I didn't even know he was Scottish until like six months oh, ago. Yeah. Very Scottish. Yeah, it's so interesting. What's the relationship like between British and Scottish people? Because I'm, I'm picking it up a little bit on Doctor <laughs> Who. Like Amy Pond was Scottish. The new Doctor is Scottish. Yeah. And they all make jokes about it. But I don't really know the context it's like well I mean, so supposedly i'm not a huge fan of this series and i i don't pretend to have done much research into it but supposedly the 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 wildlings in game of thrones are like northern northern british scottish yeah it's that it's, it's like the people in the north and there's a wall between us and them and there actually genuinely is a wall hmm. where i'm from i'm from the the very top end of the north of england so i'm in the not quite in the borderlands but almost and there actually is a wall called hadrian's wall the Roman Empire Hadrian built it to keep the Scots out. Wow. So for a very, very long time, because they used to come down and maraud. That's what they used to do, the Scots. They marauded. They <laughs> Sounds fun. blue paint on their faces and they marauded. Like Braveheart style. Kind of, yeah, but with less, you know, more of an authentic accent, I think. And a little <laughs> bit more raping and pillaging, probably, and burning of things. Yeah. So we built a big wall to keep them out. Sound familiar? <laughs> uh, Mexico paid for it. Weird. Um, but... Yeah, anyway, so there was this great big wall. So there was a huge cultural divide between between England and Scotland for many, many centuries. Um, but we're quite, we're fairly friendly now. You yeah. know, don't bring the wall up that often anymore. They threaten, they, they try and secede every now and again. Um, usually, up to now, they voted against it. I'm not sure what's going to happen this next time around. Yeah. But no, they're basically, it's... So the, the, we, there's a slightly more fractious relationship culturally between the Irish and and, and the English, uh-huh. but the English and the Scottish is just uh, yeah we just make we just make jokes about each other. Maybe it's like Seattleites and people from Tacoma. It's more like Seattleites and people from Portland, I think. Actually, mm, both places are basically the same. Yeah, but you'll fight over the minor differences. That's not true. Scotland is incredibly beautiful. Yeah. Oh, so I I just remember. So speaking of like brilliant ideas in uh, Hitchhiker's Guide. One of my absolute favorite things is the concept of the restaurant at the end of the universe. <laughs> yeah. Which is... And they keep rewinding and yeah, time and... It's not like one physical side or the other of the universe. It's literally the end of the universe. Yeah. So there's this restaurant that's perched in a time bubble right as the universe is ending. And you watch the universe die. And there's this guy, Max, who's like this announcer who's kind of giving this show during your meal. Mm-hmm. And he's making all these jokes about how everything is ending. And it's so bleak and bizarre and And he's the hackiest funny. comic because he does it every night. No- every, yeah, every yeah, night totally. Plus matinees every day. Totally. And then there's this crowd that's there and waiting for their religious leader to show up before the end of mm-hmm. the universe. And then on this one night, that guy actually shows up right before the universe explodes and he goes with it. Um, it's just so bizarre and like kind of macabre, but like wonderful I, I get this like weird warm feeling from all these really dark things no in I, I, that's, I completely agree with you that's one of the reasons i love the, the the series so much is it tells you it tells you a lot about how to think about some of the problems in life that don't yeah, have a solution totally and the you know it teaches you as a kid it taught me to to find or how you could find humor in um in real bleakness, honestly. Yeah. You know, because I, I was a fairly anxious child and the books like Hitchhikers were hilarious. You know, and I, these days I don't love the books so much as the radio series. I go back to the radio series more than the books, but mm. they're very, very funny and they treat these enormous problems with 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 reverence. Yeah. He doesn't try and um, 
satirize the, 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 the necessity of asking the questions. What he does is just punctures the, the, any idea of a possible easy answer, you know, it's, yeah. it's great. And that's real. I mean, for the big questions, there are no easy answers or just no answers at all. Yeah. And the sooner people kind of accept that and move on with their lives, I think the healthier and happier they're going to be. I think people like Trump come into power because they offer easy answers and people Oof. are interested in that continually. Yeah. And I think that the type of people who are interested in science fiction, the type of people who are interested in this type of satire, learn to think for themselves and realize that those things aren't really possible. Well, it's essentially a very, I have to say, all of the science fiction that I have in my life come into contact with, less than, less than you, definitely. But essentially has been a very, the, the further out you go, the closer you come back to the essential human experience. Mm, yeah. Essentially, a lot of the sci-fi that I know and love is very humanist. You know, and I, that, I think, actually, I have a, you may not know this, you may do, but do you know where the story, the, the concept of the whole final answer, final question, with mm -mm. The, the, the computers that get generationally increased, do you know where it comes from? Mm -mm. It's a short story by Isaac Asimov called The Final Answer. Uh-huh. And uh, Douglas Hans read this story. It's Isaac Asimov's favorite story of his. Basically, the concept of the, of the, the, the book, the story by Isaac Asimov is, the human race is very concerned by entropy, the eventual heat death of the universe. Mm -hmm. And they create a computer to try and solve the problem of how do we avoid entropy? How do we as a, as a species survive the inevitable heat death of you know, all known creation? Yeah. And the computer gets built and it processes and runs for many thousands of years and it says, I have insufficient data to answer that question. Hmm. Okay, well, is there a is the computer that can answer the question? Yes, there is. The computer then designs the computer to answer the question. <laughs> the whole another million years passes and the human species asks the question again, and the computer the new computer says, I still have insufficient data. And essentially this goes this happens several times. Each time the computer gives a an iteration on I have insufficient data to answer the question. And at the very end of uh, the universe, at the point where the universe is, Im is, is imploding, eating itself through entropy, yeah. the computer finally has an answer and there's no one left to hear it. Yeah. And so the computer just says, let there be light and the book ends. Wow. So that's where the, the idea of the of deep, deep thought, thought comes and, from. Yeah, and the Magrathian yeah. Earth. Which I didn't realize. I, I, I did a bit of research on this a, a few days back, and I was like, that's really, really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting. Like, I mean, Douglas Adams basically took that idea and made it funny. <laughs> mm. Yeah, made it very funny. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Because I remember the first time I read the first book, and they ask the question, the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. And to me... The, the question was, what is the meaning of life, the well, universe, and everything? Yeah, but they, they don't actually ask that. So then... They ask for the answer, and then the, the answer is... 42. 42, and then yeah. the computer goes, well, if you, it would have been easy if you'd know the question. Right. And then they went and then another computer to, to, to right. answer the question. And it's kind of brilliant, because I think that... Like, the first time I read it, I filled in the question. And I'm like, well, the question's obvious, even though they're phrasing it kind of funny. And then the computer says, you, didn't, you don't know the question. And I look back at the wording, I'm like, oh, wow. Yes, that works. I, you know, I, I think the problem could be yeah. we weren't sure what the question was. Yeah, totally. Which is so great. And that's something I actually really like in the movie is when they find deep thought again in like present day and it's just watching cartoons. <laughs> uh, no, I didn't like that. I, I think a lot of the, the, the deep thought conceit in the, the original versions of the story, are, it's, it's very, very funny. Yeah. And in the book, it's, it's just kind of a damp squib. It doesn't really go anywhere. Like it's... In the book, it's this this huge majesty. You build up this enormous anticipation, yeah, and it just drops. And it's yeah. mostly done by sound. So one, actually, one of the things I want to talk about the one of the reasons I love the radio series more than any other iteration of the story is that the the BBC Radiophonic Workshop, which is this, I mean, they made the I, I believe I'm right in saying is they come up with the theme the theme mu music for Doctor Who. Oh wow! Back in the '60s, when it was very pioneering, this incredible yeah. electronic music. Yeah. So Douglas Adams worked very closely with um, the BBC uh, Radiophonic Workshop to produce the mix for the radio show. It's mixed like a rock album. The first mm. time it's ever happened, it was mixed in stereo, in stereo too. Yeah. And the soundscape of the radio series is extraordinary. And a lot of the reasons why it's so funny and so engaging are because of the, the soundscape that they create. So on, even though he was writing these scripts, in some cases, you know, minutes before for recording, for mixing... <laughs> 
they could create this extraordinary oral landscape around the script yeah which sold it yeah and i think the deep thought parts of that are some of the best examples i haven't gotten that far in the radio series i'll have to check that out i wouldn't bother with season two season two's a little bit of a mess there's a bit there's lots of stuff from season two which ended up in the books and was probably better explained in the books season two he was literally writing as he went along is season two does it line up with book two like restaurant at the end of the universe stuff? none of it lines up with anything much at all really no it's really all over the map um between I'm, seasons one and two of the radio series you've got about two and a half books worth okay and i know that the books are considered to be kind of the, de- the definitive version of the actual chronology of the story he, that's what he was like if it's wrong here it's just wrong forever yes. right he's like this, <laughs> yeah, is yeah. Just, this is as wrong as it's ever gonna get it's as right yeah. as the wrong is gonna get yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. totally what else do you have in your notes um well i did a lot of homework for this actually i studied pretty hard I, mostly it's reasons why i hate the film <laughs> I'm so i can just go through them <laughs> I, I'm I'm down to I'm down to hear more of <laughs> why is Trillian American question mark um, why does so, four prefects say Guildford Guildford what's it supposed to be Guildford Guildford this is England we don't pronounce there's always at least one letter in any given word that you don't pronounce the yeah. same as spot foreigners Guild, when, I, Guildford, when I was in um, of all things when I was in London there's the, there was a street that we just couldn't pronounce at first I think it was Gloucester. It's pronounced Gloucester. Yeah, but it looks like Gloucester. Oh uh, yes, it do, yes it does a little bit. And I, uh, I suppose we, if you're if you're it, of that mindset, exactly. So like at first we're like, weak-minded. I suppose do we it take, could, <laughs> do we take a ride at Gloucester way. Street? Uh, and then uh, like figure out how to pronounce it. And then someone asked me for directions one day. I'm like, yeah, you just go down here and you take a, a left on Gloucester. And they're like, oh, okay, thank you. (laughs) And they seemed very pleased that I knew how to pronounce it. But I'm from this place in San Diego, in El Cajon, that looks like El Cajun. And there's like Hamasha Boulevard, looks like Jamaica Boulevard, Boulevard, but it's Hamasha. I pronounced uh, Tequila as Tequila for the first four years of my life in the Pacific Northwest. So it's one of those things where you just have to spend some time in a place to to learn the the things. (laughs) But they, I mean, they should be correcting most deaf on how he's pronouncing... Guildford. I mean, that's yeah. just. But maybe it's deliberate. Maybe it's meant. Maybe, yeah. Maybe it's meant to show that he's not actually from Guildford. That reminds me of my favorite moment. I could in the be movie. giving them too much credit. Maybe my favorite moment in the movie is when they're going to be ejected from the Vogon ship, and they're standing there, and you expect them to blow outward, and then the, the door opens from below, and they fall down. Oh. It just makes me laugh so much every time. I don't remember that bit. How do you feel about the way they uh, portrayed the infinite and probability drive? Where it kind of pops through all these different things, and they turn into um, couches or balls of yarn. That's, I mean, it's pretty hard to 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 do that. I think they did yeah. a good job of it. I mean, I, I liked, love. That I wish they, I wish they'd stuck with the with the yarn a bit longer. That that was really funny. It was just, it was just done. It's it was hilarious. gone. I mean, in the radio again, the radio sofa. show, they. I know the feeling. <laughs> in the radio show, they they kind of uh, extrude it a little bit further, and they're on the seafront in right. um, South End, and right. The, the beach is standing still, but the whatever the the, the cityscape the is moving. They actually did back that and forth. in, the, in yeah. the TV show, right? So there's a there's a lot more imagery, but it's yeah. I imagine that was probably too hard to do for the film. Yeah, I really enjoyed the pacing of all of that, where everything just like pops through so quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, it's even in the movie version, I really love the pacing of that too. Yeah, and there's the great, you know, there's the one of the most perfect pieces in the whole canon actually is the sperm whale being. Oh. Brought to life from the planet. And a bowl of petunias. Yeah, and the, you know, the only thing that went through the mind of the bowl of petunias was, oh, no, oh, no not, not again. again. If we understood that, we'd understand a lot more about the yeah. inner workings of the universe. <laughs> it just gets left there. It doesn't really ever get... I love it. it. Might, they probably revisit it in books four and five. I think they do revisit he, he revisited the sperm well. Everything that was left or the undone, bowl of he went back to at some point later in the books. Yeah. But in a, in a way that I personally I don't feel was particularly necessary. I remember loving it as a kid. I'll, we'll have to see what I think this read-through through so other things i hated about the film um <laughs> everybody just plays themselves i have to say that is true most deaf just plays most deaf sam rockwell love him sam he's rockwell playing some, he's playing fleekman from galaxy quest he's like one of the most talented actors oh he's fantastic day i think it's just, I, he's just playing sam rockwell playing like a, a, a crazy person i'm okay with that it's, I love his crazy person. I'd watch him open an envelope. I'm not complaining. Yeah, so I, I think Sam Rockwell is one of the high points of the movie. But how do you feel about the... The one thing that's kind of weird is that they, they take Zaphod's third arm and second head off. 
So then he just becomes like a human. And they, the and they make it like his evil twin. Yeah, they so make it like all the, now and again. And he's like the, ah! the dark parts of his personality. Yeah, I, I mean, it's hard. It's it was probably really hard to be more nuanced than that. Yeah. So that's what the the, the, the horror I was talking about earlier on. I mean, that's that's a pretty slow build. The whole idea that Zaphod has like done this horrible surgery on himself to right. become the thing he is. Right. That's a whole story in and of itself. Right. I mean, for the movie, you just got to make sure the damn thing's filmable. It's only right. an hour and a half. Like, now we're used now to watching movies like, you know, any Christopher Nolan, God. I mean, they're two and a half, three hours long. Yeah. Hitchhikers is an hour and a half long. They do a pretty good job of getting a lot of story into that time. Yeah. And all that extra stuff with Hamakavula and going to the yeah. Vogue Sphere. Yeah, yeah. Which, I mean, a lot of it, I honestly, doesn't engage me yeah. very I, much. I don't mind any of it. I like it. I'm, I'm very... It's fine. It's I'm very like, for... I, I'm becoming more and more forgiving of film as I get older because, in this movie in particular, when I was a kid, really captured my imagination because I had read everything in high school and then I saw this in college. I dressed as Zaphod that year for Halloween. You told me that, yeah. Yeah, I was very proud of my Zaphod costume. Um, <laughs> uh, and then I was like running around saying, "Are you wearing my underwear? Because I'm wearing yours and it's not doing the trick." <laughs> I ran around and said that so many I times. I won't lie to you, Jesse. I I scrubbed through that film pretty quickly last night <laughs> and tonight because I just honestly I I really don't like it because it's it, interesting. mostly it just it's like I said earlier on it's very confusing. If you know the story from previous iterations, it's like this disconnected gallop through the basic ideas. Yeah. And a ton of filler to try and make the story make a kind of Hollywood sense some of it yeah. i love some of the imagery i love the bits um the vogons i loved and the 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 bit where slotty bartfast is taking arthur dent through oh my god slotty bartfast he's taking him through the the the, the shop beautiful. floor the factory floor it's beautiful that is gorgeous and they yeah. hang on that for yeah. long enough for you to appreciate the majesty of it and that totally. could only work on the screen and it could only really work on the big screen the book didn't do that the various series didn't do that yeah the tv series Definitely didn't do, didn't do not. that. But the the whole like, the whole the image of being projected at a billion miles an hour through this vast space, seeing yeah. planets under construction, that was good. It was gorgeous. And Bill Nighy is my favorite part of the movie. I know. As Slade Bartfest, he's playing he's himself. Incredible. <laughs> but everyone's playing themselves in this. Film. I'm totally fine with that because look at how good they are at it. You know, I mean, Bill Nighy can deliver dialogue in one of the most incredible ways imaginable. But it's it's. It's always just Bill Nye. Like, it doesn't matter what he's in. I love... Oh, that's fine. Don't get me wrong. I mean, do, I you, do you have Nighy. a problem with, like, Han Solo? Because that's just Harrison Ford. Of course it is, but that was the first version of Harrison Ford I ever saw. Yeah. I think this might have been the first version of Bill Nye that I really? ever saw. Really? Yeah. Well, at least the first one that really stuck in my memory. Because he's in everything, and I'm sure I'd seen him somewhere. The best, the best Bill Nye is in Shaun of the Dead. When he's playing Shaun's stepfather. I don't even remember that. It's, I've seen that movie. That's a, that is a deceptively nuanced performance. Huh. I remember him in Underworld. <laughs> I don't think I saw that. He was the bad guy. I knew him oh. as radio. He was on the radio for a He's done so many radio plays. He's an incredibly gifted actor, I think. I even really like him in the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, even though... Was he in those? Yeah, he was the octopus-faced uh, oh, Davy Jones. This is very controversial, but I thought the second Pirates movie was fantastic. I the third one is garbage. No, the first one's like okay, but I love the second one. The first one's great. Let's not let's not use the word okay. But I, I like one. the first one just fine. The first one, Jesse, is a romp. The- <laughs> <laughs> Sounds very authoritative when you say it with your accent. Um, I get away with a lot. Yeah, it's hard to tell if you're if you're actually brilliant or just sound brilliant. I think you might actually be. No, brilliant. I just I don't even sound. I think you're very intelligent. I don't even sound brilliant. You You've had famous people on this. What went wrong? Why am I here? <laughs> <laughs> okay, friends, that's going to do it for us this week. Next week is a super fun show. Barney and I kept talking for quite a while about all sorts of shit. I got his uh, opinion on Brexit. Someone who actually knows what's going on. It's one of those episodes where we just kind of shoot the shit. I love doing that every once in a while. So stay tuned for that next week. And here is So Long and Thanks for All the Fish from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy movie. Love you. See you next week. So long and thanks for all the fish. So sad that it should come to this. We try to warn you all.